This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Villain Plans. Tim Hortons. Pod People of the Hundred Years' War. And Theodore Roosevelt versus the Snallygaster. You've perfected the dosi dough. You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it. Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples. Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll your Meeple dance crew as fast as you can, over and over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points. After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy. Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox. It plays two to four people, ages six and up, in five minutes. Find Breakdancing Meeple's at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing. Because when beats bump, Meeple's gotta dance. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, oh, look at that. We've got the Necromancer miniature and all the ghoul miniatures. And look at that. We got the Stormtrooper miniatures. Why, I think maybe, Robin, the GM has some sort of villainous plan for us. Uh, I sure hope it makes sense, don't you? I, I do, absolutely. Uh, and my plan uh, is in this segment to talk about why it is exactly that uh, villain plans have to make sense in the context of investigative play. And then we can go on from that insight to see uh, where it takes us. So um, in a uh, an F20 game, uh, the ideal is to string together a series of fights where at the very end, the final fight is the most intense fight. And you think that it's going to kill one or more characters, or maybe even occasionally it does. But then in the end, they pull it out and they win, right? That that is the right. ultimate emotional payoff of a of an F20 uh, adventure that keeps people coming back for more. And that if you fail to navigate that in either direction, uh, either if the fight is too easy, people will be disappointed because they didn't uh, break a sweat. Of course, making a fight harder in the middle of an F20 fight is the easiest thing in the world. Uh, so we have never done a segment on that. It's called add more monsters. Yeah. Add more hit dice. Uh, on the other hand, you know, ha having a TPK, having a total party kill, that is also a bummer. You always want to have the threat of a total party kill, uh, but never uh, do you actually want to realize it. Or when you, uh, when you do realize it becomes a legendary thing that then reverberates through all of your other games with that uh, same group of people in a, Mystery scenario, for example, any of the gumshoe uh, designs that we work on, ideally what I think you want the players to go through is to, as they go through the scenes, they gradually begin to understand what is going on. They have it mostly figured out by the time they get to the final scene, but there is still a surprise at the end. Uh, so, But that surprise is not overwhelmed, it does not overwhelm the fact that they mostly figured out what was going on before they 
uh, get there. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the investigative campaign and, and it, and it can certainly end in a TPK because the granddaddy of all investigative games is Call of Cthulhu, which ends in a TPK quite often just at any moment. Yeah. Especially the convention. But, but the, right. But the, but the payoff is the payoff not of adrenaline necessarily, but the payoff of the intellect. You, you thought about things, you studied things, you tried to figure out a way that you would not be massacred by deep ones or Nilothotep or whatever it was. And so because it's a game in which you are fundamentally engaging a, a thought process, a strategy, even to find out that the, the foe is either irrelevant to that process or actively flies in the face of that process is a letdown. Even if the fight is great, even if the scenes are great, even if at the moment of play, you're super happy with it because it was a really great fight against an army of sphinxes or whatever. Um, at the end, you are thinking, but why you have what uh, Hitchcock called the refrigerator moment where you've, you've the movie's over, you're back home, you've gone to the refrigerator to get a beer. And as you're reaching for the beer, like, Oh, that doesn't make any sense. Her uncle was dead the whole time or whatever it was. So ideally, because you are again uh, in an iterative universe trying to sell an investigative uh, game to your players next week, you don't want that to happen. Keep them away from the refrigerator uh, or when they reach for the beer, have them think, oh, that was great. Her uncle was dead the whole time. Amazing. What a good game. Right. Now, if you have a chance to kind of apprehend that the uncle is dead and then you find out, I knew it. I knew the uncle was dead because we saw the footprints in the dust and they couldn't have been human. But I, 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 I said that an hour ago, the uncle is dead. And, but the other thing is, oh, but I didn't realize he had the guillotine with him. So you have the payoff of the, the reward for having figured stuff out and also something else happens so that it isn't a total, oh yeah, you totally got it. You know, the ghost puts his hands up, throw yep, me in ghost yep, jail. You yep, don't want that. There we go. Uh, yep. But so there, there's a yep. loop to be thrown. Um, and so there's two levels of not making sense in an investigative game. That most obvious one is just that your logic fails, you know, mm. that uh, the butler couldn't have actually have been at the boathouse at the time of the murder because you established, in fact, that he was at the kit in the kitchen. And so that's just a basic logic error. And the uh, those are very hard to catch yourself in and hard to work out. And the answer is sort of don't do that. But the thing that I wanted to focus on in this segment is where the thing that the villain is trying to accomplish is illogical or makes no sense. And the problem with that is the real world is full of refrigerator logic. Yeah. Uh, Dashiell Hammett uh, famously uh, said of his Pinkerton days that he uh, never met an intelligent criminal and people who are doing bad things do uh, a bad or illogical things uh, all the time. Charles Manson famously thought he was going to start a, a race war right. uh, by uh, committing those murders. And, uh, of course, and there are lots of uh, horrible criminals today who are doing things with that uh, reason. Their reason is psychological, but in terms of being able to uh, understand what they're doing in order to predict it while you're investigating, that doesn't make sense. So if you get to the end of an investigative mystery and you're asking you know, the person who's imprisoning all the ghosts, why you were doing that? Why did you break into the house? Why did you set that fire? And at the end, you find their world of delusion in which all of that makes sense. That's incredibly disappointing because you had no way of figuring out right. uh, what the logic was behind that because it is uh, 
irrational to its core. And so that deprives the uh, the players of that ability to piece things together. And if they don't have that, then probably the way that you're pulling through them through the mystery is just from is leading them from location to location and witness to witness. You haven't given them en- enough to chew on to to, yeah. uh, to confidently feel that they've solved anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, if their motive is that they want to impress Jodie Foster, there's no real way that you, the detective, can figure that out. And even if they're leaving notes at every murder, check out my cool murder, Jodie Foster, that doesn't help. Right. You can't like, you know, that, that that doesn't connect. That's just a crazy person motive. It's not a a logical progression of crime. Uh, and as you say, criminals are stupid. Elmore Leonard, of course, has famously got, you know, a whole overa of books dedicated to that theory. And so the ability to reason from A to B to C is the sort of ability that keeps most of us out of prison, quite frankly. And so the failure of that, while it's realistic, is uh, only fun in the Elmore Leonard sense of sort of enjoying your exposure in some touristy or um, uh, or other sense to someone who thinks, yes, I'm going to commit all these murders and then there will be a race war just like the Beatles predicted. That is interesting and it can be uncanny, certainly. And that is where I think a lot of serial killer movies get their charge is not so much the, oh, he's very clever, we have to work this out, but it's the impingement on the uncanny constantly. That, that makes that story have its particular payoff. Right. And, and what you can do with a uh, someone who is moved by a, a delusion or an impossible motivation is reveal that up front. So, you know, you know that uh, the assassin is trying to impress Jodie Foster. And the question is not, why are they doing this? You know that right away. But there's some other mystery that is explicable that you can put together. It's like, but where is this person hiding or who is sheltering them yeah. or what is the, what is the, the magical item that I need in order to uh, shut down the gate that this force of illogic comes through so that again, there's something other than what is going on and what are they going to do next becomes the focus of the the mystery. So you can still acknowledge these uh, people exist and the crimes that they commit exist, but that the uh, trying to work out why they're doing what they're doing is not the main uh, focus or something else that the characters right. can investigate and the players can feel that they slowly piece together and solve a problem. And then uh, at the end, they they already know that the person is uh, is not putting their plans together with a full deck. And there's some other thing that comes together at the end to give them that sense of accomplishment. Right. And, and some of that can be, I mean, in a, in a game where you have a desire to dig into the psychology of, of the character, um, it might be a thing of, well, they say that they're trying to start a race war, but why are they actually doing all this stuff? Is it just um, uh, to be, you know, the most important person in the world because they have a a gigantic narcissistic desire that was uh, brought up by, you know, growing up poor and abused in Kentucky? Do they have some other uh, screw loose that, that was uh, caused by some, you know, moment of obsession or being, you know, having a tumor or something, something else? Or is the fact that we have these series of people with irrational motivations, is that actually the machination of some genuine uh, criminal with a mind control machine or with a, with, or, or, or some sort of a, a psychic bad guy who is making people uh, who are already 
you know, tottering on the fringe of sanity, do crazy things. And, oh, it's not like we're trying to track down these individual obsessed assassins. What we're trying to do is find out they all met the same newspaper guy or they all had the same uh, grade school teacher or something. And now now we have, oh, look at that. All of it's coming together in a story. And it's the sort of classic detective bad guy, the Moriarty, that you are uh, getting the most charge out of looking for because they're probably doing something awful. And also you have a rational sense of a contest of hunting them down. And that's, I think, the, the real fun, because, again, the amount of, I think, play charge you can get out of, oh, his mother was uh, was neglectful. That doesn't actually help you in play. It's not like you, you know, had plus one to your tests against him because now you understand his Freudian background. And it's not a super satisfying answer because plenty of people had neglectful mothers and weren't out doing all these horrible things. So the, the psychology generally either has to turn on something artificially accessible to you as the detective, or it has to lead you back to a, a bigger story that you can actually put your head around. Right. And another form of not making sense is not the antagonist who uh, is delusional, but is simply misinformed or, or mistaken. So uh, if the entire, if they are, you know, trying to go after the, the agribusiness billionaire who uh, they think uh, is responsible for uh, uh, killing their uh, their daughter, but in fact it was something else entirely uh, that is responsible for that. Uh, that also makes no sense unless you flag that heavily up front. And so the antagonist there, if you want to do that plot line, that you find out who it is who misinformed them and why, right? And that the discovery that the uh, apparent antagonist. Uh, is wrong about something important comes early on and then allows you once more to piece together what is really going on in order to have a uh, a satisfying puzzle. Uh, and I guess really what we're looking at here is the fact that, you know, a crossword puzzle that's full of typos and misspellings uh, is unsatisfying because you can't solve it. You don't have the pieces that you need. Uh, and so I, I guess what we're really saying here on, on an even higher level is make sure that players have all the pieces they require in order to uh, put together the uh, narrative of the, of the antecedent action that they're uh, that you're trying to get them to to thread together. So you can let them know about things that are seemingly illogical if you do it early enough that they can then turn illogic into logic. I mean, I guess what we're all all these things are joined by is anticlimax. Um, at the climax, as you say, in the climax of an F-20, you want to have a big fight that maybe kills you. At the climax of an investigation, you want to have a big reveal that impresses you. And if you don't have that, that's an anti-climax. And that is, uh, why did you kill all those people? Uh, for a motive that makes no sense and you could never have discovered. Well, that's an anti-climax, even if you were very, very clever in hunting down what white panel van they were driving and, and where they parked it and you found them, you still feel that anti-climax at the end because they just did it because they're stupid. Or, you know, aha, I've got you trying to kill this agribusiness guy. Oh, you were wrong? Well, that's that now I I feel like I've wasted my time hunting down someone who can't be bothered to do basic chemical research. And and so what you need to avoid is an anticlimax. And even if you've got a story that is about a delusion or a mistake, you have to locate the climax somewhere else. It has to become, well, they may have begun because they were incorrect about what uh, killed their daughter or they may have begun because they wanted to 
impress Jodie Foster. But now, now that you're in it, now it's a sav- now it's a war to the knife. And they know that killing you will impress Jodie Foster. And now it's a personal thing. And so even if they're still dumb and wrong, you have the satisfying climax of stopping someone who is fighting you on relatively equal grounds in the, in the, in the course of the game and is a relatively great threat to you and your, and your player characters so that you have the sense of danger uh, survived to reach that climax that you get again, as you say, from F20, which of course handles this barely without even thinking because it's a mechanical system of, of, you know, challenge ratings and levels and hit dice. And it, it, it it's sort of a good fight almost pops out automatically half the time. Whereas an investigation you have to really work at. And I guess what we're circling toward is something that we've, uh, said a bunch of times on previous episodes. We've said it in relationship to uh, Game of Thrones. We've said it in relationship to uh, Rise of Skywalker, which is the reveal can't be less interesting than the question. Uh, because uh, if you have uh, the revelation at the end that the character is mistaken or uh, uh, working toward a goal that can never be realized and makes no sense, chances are the players imposed a, a narrative that did make sense and that narrative is probably cooler and more fun than, as you suggest, oh, yeah, he's he's just uh, didn't do the research or, you know, he's just uh, leapt to a wrong conclusion. Um, and so uh, make sure that that the twist at the end has to be uh, satisfying in the sense that it pays off something that you've established uh, and it has a little bit of surprise in it. But it also has that satisfaction of delivering the thing that you promised, albeit in a uh, somewhat uh, different way. And since we're talking about satisfying endings, I think that is an eminently satisfying ending to this segment. And that just makes me more excited for whatever even more interesting and logical and fascinating segment waits us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before 
or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. The clattering of pots and pans, the smell of spices wafting through the air, the click-click of the fire-starting device. Let us know that we're once more in the warm and, and comforting confines of the food hut. And here in the food hut, instead of um, uh, the clattering of pots and pans, there is the fsh of coffee machines and the whatever the noise donuts make, possibly a <laughs> choir of angels singing as they come down from heaven, because we're in a food hut. Created by request uh, from Patreon backers Tim Manis and Gene Bauer uh, asked, as both one, an American interested in the delightful ways of our neighbors to the north, and two, a person named Tim, or at least one of you is a person named Tim, I'd love to hear a Food Hut segment on the role of Tim Hortons in the Canadian national psyche. Robin, I have eaten a Tim Hortons. It is perfectly fine, uh, delightful. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts of the North, I would say, and I, I mean that in a positive way. And I, what I know about Tim Horton is that in the great Canadian cultural, you're on my side of the car, there's a war between Tim Horton's people and Starbucks people. And the Tim Horton's people are the rubes and the country cousins and the Westerners <laughs> and the Starbucks people, for whatever reason that would be, are the uh, cosmopolitan latte sipping snotty ones. Uh, so, so Robin, am I right? Is that the, the way Canada sees things? And why don't you love Tim Horton? Why don't you all come together? For goodness sakes, you're a country that exists to come together over donuts. Why not come together over, over these lovely donuts? I, I wouldn't say that there's there's hostility between the two groups, but which side you fall on is telling. And you know, I, our friend uh, Jesse Scoble is is a is on the Horton side of the fence. So you know, uh, you've just called him a rube. I didn't call seems. him a rube. I said that's what Canadians call him. Um, so uh, yes, uh, Tim Hortons is no ordinary fast food uh, service organization that does have a, a mythic role in uh, in the Canadian uh, psyche. And, uh, uh, of course, the reason for that is hockey. Yeah, well, yes, you said Canada yeah. at the beginning of the segment. Tim Horton uh, was a, a defenseman and an entrepreneur. He uh, did a 24-season stint in the NHL, playing uh, most notably for the Leafs and then for a bunch of other teams. And uh, in uh, 1964, in Hamilton, which is a Canada steel town, not uh, not so far from Toronto, uh, he founds uh, Tim Hortons uh, with a couple of with another with a business partner. Initially, they're thinking, "Let's do a burger joint," but they stumble onto uh, what is perhaps because of Tim Horton the Canadian national diner food, which is the donut. Of course, Americans have donuts, but for some reason, they resonate more in Canada. There are more uh, donut shops per capita here than anywhere else. Um, there's a, an unsavory reason for that uh, uh, later on, which uh, remind me to get to. Uh, but the thing about uh, Tim Horton is that he uh, establishes this line of, of donut shops. And then uh, in 1974, uh, he is killed in a single car accident. And oh. uh, this is something that uh, growing up in the 70s, 
in a small town in Ontario that had a Tim Hortons that you would always hear in reference to the, oh, you, you know, Tim Horton died in a car accident, eh? And so uh, this uh, clearly is part of the, the great mythic sacrifice, uh, a, a sort of um, cream-filled apotheosis, uh, if you will. What other apotheosis is worthy of the name, Robin? Exactly. Uh, that I think kind of fuels and binds uh, the idea that Tim Hortons is not just a donut shop, but it is somehow uh, quintessentially part of the fiber of uh, the nation. I'm not a big Tim Hortons habitué myself. Uh, the times when I was going to Tim Hortons, it was, Starbucks fella, eh? Well, not Starbucks either, but that's a whole yeah, other yes, story, right? I know. Uh, but but when I was a teenager in my hometown of Aurelia, you know, we would go to the Tim Hortons and uh, have bow ties, which was like a sort of an elaborate, uh, double sized, uh, not donut shaped. Well, bow tie shaped thing, come to think of it, right, with yeah. cream filling and a sort of a double or triple decker uh, chocolate cream donut um, or eclairs or the, what I think of as the essential Canadian uh, donut product, the cruller. Um, right. Later on, they become more of uh, focused on other f- breakfast and lunch foods. And they uh, sort of the, their watchword there is kind of not so processed seeming mass processed foods. So soups, right. sandwiches. They also uh, later on become uh, famous, uh, just like McDonald's does with its Monopoly game for a sweepstakes where you can win prizes, and uh, it's called the Roll Up the Rim to Win. And they have a person doing a Scottish accent, so they can roll the L's there. Um, and that becomes a big deal. But the, the thing that really cements people to Tim Hortons is their coffee, or as I refer to it, a brown liquid. Um, and <laughs> so Tim Hortons serves uh, coffee for people who need coffee as medicine. It is a, yeah. a delivery system uh, for uh, caffeine. And if you have to walk out outdoors in Canada and do hard work, it doesn't matter what the coffee tastes like. You need it in your bloodstream yesterday. Yes. And it doesn't. And also what, whatever level you might be a white collar worker in the office, you might be, but you have, if you have a serious coffee habit, this is, uh, you know, a liquid barbiturate. And the reason right. you can tell that it's for people who don't love coffee is that people prefer to have it in the form of a double, double and a double, double, of course, is double cream, double sugar. You, know how it tastes if that's how most yeah. people like it. Right. Yeah. And so of course, as you suggest, there is sort of a, a class uh, divide, uh, which doesn't actually really break down by class because there are people on both sides of, of the fence. Uh, but uh, between people who uh, are more interested in the taste of coffee and the fancier uh, snacks and stuff rather than the meals that you would get uh, at a Starbucks. Now, of course, true coffee snobs, such as your humble correspondent, uh, will go to Starbucks in a pinch, you know, if you're in a strange uh, land or uh, perhaps in Indianapolis, if you know, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's where you got to go. But, you know, yes. the, the real coffee snob, of course, has their local place. I'm, I'm on record as, as saying that Starbucks uh, performed the yeoman service of bringing the acceptable level of bad coffee skyrocketing up in America. Right. And, and, and the secret, <laughs> didn't of course, get to good coffee, but bad coffee is now much better. Right. And, and the secret to Starbucks, of course, is to never go near the brewed coffee, but only go to the espresso based uh, drinks. Right. And Starbucks, of course, is what creates the revolution that brings all the fancy handmade coffee places to cities like Toronto. And that's something that's happened, you know, since uh, I've been living here. Uh, at any rate, back to Tim Hortons. Yeah, right. Without Starbucks, there'd be no intelligentsia. Right. So Tim Hortons gets really big in the 90s to the point where in the mid-90s, it 
merges with Wendy's. And then it unmerges with Wendy's. But during that process, it becomes the biggest food service provider in Canada, bigger than McDonald's. And in 2002, Wendy's spins it off into its own separate uh, publicly traded company, which is then repatriated to Canada in 2007, becomes a Canadian company once again. And that continues for seven years until it then merges with Burger King. And today it is now owned uh, by a, a series of holding companies that owns both of those giant food firms. And I think currently the corporation uh, is registered in Brazil. So, uh, and since corporations, as we know, are people, <laughs> a, a Brazilian now owns uh, Tim Hortons. Um, they've been expanding not only into the United States with some success, but not huge success because Dunkin' Donuts is occupying uh, their their niche in uh, in the Northwest. And I guess there's that niche. all yeah. sorts of different donut chain territories. There are some uh, places in Europe where you can get Tim Hortons. They've expanded a big time into China and into uh, the Gulf states. However, uh, there is some sad uh, news for those who associate uh, Tim Hortons with, with hockey and with people sending, you know, the ground Tim Hortons coffee to uh, their relatives in other countries so they can enjoy the uh, flavor that they are uh, addicted to, is that uh, in 2018, they suffered a big reputational plummet. And there's a, a company that surveys the relative reputations of different companies in Canada. And Tim Hortons dropped from the seventh spot, the most seventh most beloved company in Canada, down all the way to it dropped like forty slots in the space of a year. It's wow, the steepest plummet ever, and that was because in Ontario, uh, when the minimum wage was raised by the then uh, Ontario government, a number of not even Tim Hortons itself as a corporate entity, but a number of franchise owners in Ontario uh, banded together and announced that they would then claw back paid breaks and benefits from uh, their workers in order to compensate for the grievous injury of being required to pay more in minimum wage. And there might be other countries where people go, yeah, that's just that's just how business is. But in Canada, uh, we didn't take kind of that. And, uh, and so uh, Tim Hortons suffered a big blow to its image as a uh, beloved national institution. And uh, I think only people's uh, need for the, for the spice, for the brown stuff, uh, has uh, has kept them over that uh, that big hump. Uh, after they suffered that plum, I mean, are they uh, holding firm? These franchisees are they, you know, uh, all sporting top hats and mutton chop side whiskers as they uh, cacklingly grab their loony? Uh, they, they buckled, but people are still ma- uh, kind of they're uh, still mad. It, or right. Not even that they're currently mad, but it's. Uh, I think it did sort of the mythic, you know, Canadian purity Canadian of Tim, Tim Hortons. Hortons was- uh, he died in a car accident. Eh? That that. Yeah. Uh, that was injured and they were revealed not as, uh, you know, guardians of Canada's soul, but as part of the court of the magic beaver, but indeed just right. near the, just another company that was out to rookie money changers in the temple. You might exactly. say, but you are alluding Robin to a, another dark, uh, stain in the history of Tim Hortons that you, uh, were going to get to. What's that about? Oh, so right. So the, the other reason why donuts, there may be more donut shops, uh, per capita in Canada than uh, in other places is uh, this was at least for a time in big cities the place to go to buy drugs uh, late at night uh, there were all, all sorts of uh, 24-hour donut shops and uh, for a time it's a seedy underworld element uh, crept in 
because it's a cold city, especially, you know, in, in the winter. Yeah. And uh, if you have uh, homemade pharmaceuticals to exchange for cash at 3 a.m. in February, yeah. uh, you want to do that uh, in front of a Boston cream. For a good old long time, you couldn't even turn on uh, the, the, your news stories without seeing someone being busted for dealing weed out of the Taco Bell drive up window. And I think it's just a matter of what's open uh, when the customers for illicit substances are out and wandering around. And in in Canada, it would be the Tim Hortons and in America, it would be the Taco Bell. And that's that's really uh, just a niche being filled ecologically than it is a, a, a particular stain on the donut. I thought that you were going to say that the, the recipe for donuts was taken from a, a Cree elder in, in a savage murder or something, but just there's a bunch of, you know, drug dealers hang out there. That's, that's part of the urban charm. Right. And, and, and even then, uh, it wouldn't even be the Tim Hortons per se that would be, uh, cause of course, Canada has all the donuts it needs from Tim Hortons, yet there are another two or three down market donut chains. And I think those were the ones that were sustained uh, more by their nature as a, a late night hangout for people who, uh, Needed right. to meet at 3 a.m. And, uh, you know, Tim Hortons was on another. another I've, I've always thought that uh, that these um, uh, build your own frozen yogurt places basically just have to deal heroin. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying all of them. I'm not saying Pinkberry, but I'm saying, yes, all of them and Pinkberry. Yes, they're w- well known for the uh, yeah. for, for the black tar swirl. Exactly. Right. You just you just have to put the right combo of toppings on. And then someone looks at you and says, all right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll hook you up. Uh, well, on that note, I, uh, I think it's time for us to uh, head out and, uh, you know, quickly grab some Timbits. Uh, while we listen to this commercial, and we'll be fortified double, double. for whatever exciting segment lies on the other side. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through Keep us from running out of crullers by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Will Ferguson and Fifi Payat, Pedro Garcia, Stephen Hammond, Derek Heimforth, and Aryan Poutsma. It's now time for Ken and Robin Recycle Audio, and this time around, you, you've noticed we've not been uh, out and about in the world, uh, although some of the segments in this episode may lead you to think otherwise because this is a uh, episode full of bank segments that we recorded a while ago and are now uh, dropping in order to uh, cover a little bit of time off. And this 
is the nerd trope from the uh, Ken and Robin Live uh, YouTube event that we did back in April. Uh, this is just a little taste of it. You can see the whole thing uh, over on YouTube. But uh, now let's uh, go back uh, to April and uh, and listen to that nerd trope. Ken, I believe you you know the drill here. When we start off these uh, our, our live panels, we begin with the nerd trope cards. Uh, these, of course, are supplied to us uh, by our uh, good friend, uh, Cal of Tate. We have a deck of nerd cards. We have a deck of trope cards. And uh, we have not met. Is we have that not correct, met. We have not met. We've never met before. We're completely unaware of one another. Right. And I'm now going to assign you the, uh, we had that one before. Oh, we haven't had that. Oh, Cat won't like that one. Uh, <laughs> we're also not going to do that one. The Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War. Selected at random. Selected at random. Literally. And uh, That's called the Magician's Force, people, by the, the magician's way. Magician's Force. not familiar with that. We're also not going to do Kitchen Sink, draw five more trope cards. We are not going to do that, no. Uh, because this is our experimental first panel. Right, yeah. So we're going to do Pod People. Pod, pod People. People. Pod people. So we're doing the Hundred Years' War, Ken. Hundred Years' War. And pod as people. It relates to pod people. As it relates to pod people. All right. Okay. The, uh, the, the first thing to establish is that uh, the question, obviously, is, is this uh, the Hundred Years' War uh, fought between two competing teams of pod people, or is one or the other of the sides... Uh, influence corrupted, taken over by pod people. And I think probably when you examine the question of which side it is that went about in sort of uh, slovenly uh, slack behavior and didn't pick up their lawn, which we know is a, a sign of the pod people from Jack Finney's immortal novel, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and uh, generally uh, went about things with no eye to the aesthetics, we know that uh, that must be the English, because the French obviously are classy. They've got the fancy armor, they have the whole nine yards. And also, it beggars the imagination, and I ask you to, to imagine this, that at random, the Welsh longbow should be a game-breaking invention in warfare, a thing that happened only during that little window of the Hundred Years' War. Right after the Hundred Years' War, they stopped Welsh longbowing. If it's this great super weapon, you'd think they'd have been using it all the way down to World War One, But no, they just stopped. They just, you know, blew it off. It, it stopped happening. And everyone's like, well, oh, they, gunpowder. Oh, they, they, they the switched Black from, Death. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, they, they switched from long bows just to long words. Exactly, right. And um, uh, before... The Thirty Years' War, they're, they're not uh, really going bananas with the Welsh Longbow. The Welsh Longbow just springs up out of nowhere at the Battle of Cressy, annihilates a bunch of perfectly uh, uh, innocent French people who are just wandering about, you know, trying to uh, maintain the dignity of the feudal order. Uh, so, the, so when you ask which side has lower aesthetic standards and which side has a mysterious super weapon, the answer is obviously it's the English. So now that we've established that the English are the pod people and the French are uh, the forces of humanity, broadly speaking, you have to say that uh, where did uh, the first pod people come down? And where, what is the Santa Mira, if you will, of the outbreak? And obviously, since we've just talked about how it's the Welsh longbow, we know it must be in Wales. There must have been um, a, a meteor that struck or some other uh, kind of an event in Wales, possibly connected with uh, Halley's Comet, 
which uh, was in the sky in the early 1300s, possibly connected with the green children of Woolpit, which we've already discussed, possibly connected with some sort of um, uh, uh, adventure at sea uh, in which uh, the pods uh, fell to earth and then floated onto land. And indeed, we remember a previous expedition to Wales uh, by the Romans, who, of course, were very concerned to burn out all the Druid groves. And now we're maybe beginning to get somewhere because what would the Druids be venerating in those groves that would be vegetable-like and susceptible to being burned out? Why, it must have been pods, alien pods. So perhaps the alien pods go even farther back to Julius Caesar times. And that's why Boudicca's rebellion uh, was so terrifying to everyone because she had threatened to find the, the, the store of pod people and, and deal with them, swap out her uh, leading lieutenants. And uh, that's why she was able to destroy the entire Roman infrastructure in Britain in, in a matter of, of weeks and why it took uh, so many legions to put uh, a minor provincial rebellion like that back down. So we're establishing that the pods came down possibly uh, in the earliest times of, of ancient Britain, that they were uh, centered on the island of Anglesey in Wales, uh, the, the Druidic Mona, which, of course, the, uh, the Romans took care to burn out uh, all of the uh, sacred groves of. Uh, again, a thing that was not uh, their standard practice. If you look at their attitude with other religions, it was very live and let live, and whatever you want to do, as long as you know, you know, pour out of 40 to the emperor, we're all cool with it. They, they had a very specific anti-Druid, anti-Welsh attitude. So we've established a secret pod person lineage going back through uh, Wales. It, it pours out, bringing with it its, its super weapon under the cover of the Welsh longbow, as if that's a thing, and they bring it to invade France. And of course, they, they win a series of famous victories. They're obliterating English armies left and right. And yet somehow they can't get it together to finish the job. And that's another sign that it's pod people. Pod people have obviously some sort of, of collective action problem at the large size. It's the same instinct that prevents them being able to, um, uh, you know, pick up their yard and, uh, and bother to remember all the details of the human life that they're, in, uh, that they're impersonating. And so they wind up unable to seal the deal. But, of course, they're pod people, so they are spreading. Um, you have more and more uh, French nobles being turned. The Burgundians um, uh, go over to the pod people. And it literally takes a intervention from different powers. And these powers, I don't know who, who what you want to say they are. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's the fairies. Maybe it's the fairies working for God fairies you know i think the fairies by then have got a pretty good sense of who's in charge but they set up joan of arc who what do we know about her she hears voices she's superhumanly charismatic again the opposite of pod people in every way and probably remember she had uh, superpowers of detection because she could detect the dauphin in a crowd of people in the french court having never seen any of them so perhaps she was gifted the fairy sight the ability to see pod people wherever they were. And that's the turning point. Suddenly the battle of Orléans goes the other way. The pod people are falling. The French are able to target them with, uh, with uh, crossbows or whatnot. And the English cause in France completely disintegrates over a matter of, you know, 30 years. Uh, it, it takes from the battle of Orléans, the turning point there, it takes barely 25 years before the French are, completely victorious in every corner of the country, something they were totally unable to do before Joan of Arc. So we've demonstrated Joan of Arc, superpowers, able to spot uh, people hiding in crowds, English, sloppy, 
possess a super weapon that somehow is not relevant before or after. I think that I think the case is made, Robin. I think I've demonstrated this. I think Arnold Toynbee would come back from the dead and say, why have I been brought back from the dead? What necromancy do you command? But then he would say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so thank you, Ken, for that uh, magnificent nerd trope. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bupkis. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilization separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dads. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. So as I mentioned before, this is made up of bank segments. We're about to talk about Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, so if we don't talk about the uh, new story about the statue of Roosevelt in the uh, Natural History Museum in New York, that's because we recorded this segment uh, long before that became a new story. But I think Ken and I will both agree that a new statue uh, with Theodore Roosevelt and a Snallygaster uh, would be an ideal solution. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, he could be with a Snallygaster and he could have his foot on some uh, some other cryptid that we don't like. Maybe also a Snallygaster. I don't know. A bunch of Snallygasters. It could be like Lacoon being pulled down by snakes. Except Snallygasters. That'd be fantastic. Right. And so now let's let's back up and have that segment where we explain what a Snallygaster is. Do we have to, though? It's time to venture once more into that most ill-defined of huts. The hut where we have to tell you on the internet what it means. And uh, there's usually an alien and a, a big cat. Oh, man. There's no... There's, the hut is like a hunting lodge. And... Uh, there's a guy with a pince-nez over in the corner and a, and a Rough Rider hat, and he keeps saying the word bully. But could that be Theodore Roosevelt? Have we been cast back in time? And Oh, wait, is there... I hear a shrieking sound like a locomotive, but it's coming from the sky. Ken, could we possibly be in the Leptonia hut in which beloved Patreon backer Drew asks us, what astounding event occurred during President Theodore Roosevelt's Snallygaster hunt? And Ken, uh, this requires a bit of explanation, starting with, for the Yans in the crowd, uh, unlike us who, you know, hung with him, who is Theodore Roosevelt? Who is Theodore Roosevelt? Well, according to Orthodox history, Teddy Roosevelt was a uh, New York aristocrat turned cowboy, turned New York City police commissioner, turned war hero of the Spanish-American War, turned vice president, turned president. Uh, throughout, a big game hunter, exponent of the masculine life, masculinely lived, uh, had a big grin, progressive conscience, and a big stick with which to beat on foreigners. 
In short, he's one quarter of Mount Rushmore. He's our beloved president, Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, his nemesis, the Snallygaster, uh, hails from the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, yes. and uh, most specifically the Blue Ridge Mountains in Frederick County, Maryland. So not the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, as you were no doubt finishing in your musical heart, but the other ones, the, the ones just to the north of them. Uh, in the middle of uh, of the wildy woods of Western Maryland. Right. And uh, this is a place that was uh, uh, settled by Germans and therefore uh, is haunted and gloomy. Right. Yeah. It's just they, they were like, oh, we could settle by Chesapeake Bay, but it's so sunny and, and, and beautiful. <laughs> is there a bad place with a haunted forest that we could live? Yes, there is, Germans. Go to the Blue Ridge yes, Mountains. Because we brought some haunts with us and we would right. like to stock the forest with them. And so... Uh, this, the Snallygaster, he's changed, like many at Ellis Island, he changed his name to Snallygaster from uh, Schneller Geist, a uh, fast ghost. Uh, but uh, the descriptions of him are, are less ghostly and more uh, sort of uh, evil demon pterodactyly because uh, he's a, a winged creature. Uh, and uh, his desire basically is to uh, bite your neck, drain you of blood. And uh, if that isn't enough, he'll then just dump you on a hillside. And yeah. maybe you will survive and maybe, maybe not. And he's quite terrifying in aspect. He's uh, described as having alternately a, a razor-like or a metallic beak. He's got lethal claws, so we know he's got multiple attacks. He has a, a single eye, a cyclops eye, uh, which uh, has all of you uh, seasoned F20 players going, uh, can I do a cold shot to the eye? And as previously alluded to, he had a cry like a locomotive whistle. And the Snallygaster can has, has a number of different adventures that bring him to the attention of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, at one point, he lays a barrel-sized egg. So I guess not not a he, a she, This at least one of them. I mean, first of all, don't gender the Snallygaster. It might be um, a hermaphrodite Snallygaster. That's it might right. um, uh, generate its egg through other methodologies. Uh, that we don't know because with a metal beak, it's capable of anything. I certainly want to respect whatever, however, the Snallygaster identifies. I'm not trying right. to impose anything on it. Um, it, uh, but yeah, let's, let's say it's probably a she, certainly in 1909. Yeah. Probably now, a she. now, what was, what happened to the egg is an interesting question. If, if the Snallygaster leaves an egg behind, you would think that there would be, you know, scientific study or a giant fry up or something. It also at one point picks up a railroad worker by its suspenders and, I guess that hies back to the whole dump you on a hillside thing. Now, at this point, the Snallygaster uh, acquires a bit of characterization because in another incident, uh, the Snallygaster actually spoke to somebody uh, and it uh, mysteriously declared, my, I'm dry. I haven't had a good drink since I was killed in the Battle of Chickamauga. So which side uh, did the Snallygaster fight on, Ken? Well, I mean, if it's from Frederick County, Maryland, amongst the German immigrants, it probably fought for the Union. I mean, unless its opposition to them in the form of biting their necks and drinking their blood meant that it was actually a, I mean, a copperhead. And indeed, a copperhead is reptilian and has a metal face. So there we are. Um, I, I, I think that its, its allegiances, uh, such as they are, remain a mystery, just like its gender and whether or not it ever actually existed. And I, I guess it was just like drinking blood because no one thought to give it any beer. Yeah. That would seem to me to be a solution to the problem. But if it's predating on Germans, I feel like someone thought to give it beer <laughs> at some point. <laughs> well, uh, you would think in all of the articles about it uh, in the Middletown Valley Register by editor George C. Roderick and reporter Ralph S. Wolf, you would think that they would have covered that. 
But oddly enough, uh, they didn't. And uh, at this point, students of the Elliptony Hut may be thinking to themselves, wait a minute, is this one of them classic newspaper hoaxes? Especially since this was right after the Jersey Devil famous newspaper hoax. Um, but we on the show know different, that that is just the veil out, that there's, there's no such thing as a newspaper hoax in the 19th century or early 20th century. There are plenty of them now, but in the, in the olden days, uh, you just said it was a hoax because you had to cover up what really happened. And what really happened is that Roosevelt didn't just go and hunt the Snallygaster, Ken, right? He actually did hunt the Snallygaster. Took it down. You can't, you, you can't be, you can't be going up against Teddy R and, and living to tell the tale. This is, of course, uh, during the Taft administration when Teddy Roosevelt has a little more free time. He's still kicking around Washington, making a nuisance of himself. But uh, when the word of a snallygaster comes, he postpones his African safari, goes off into the Blue Ridge Mountains and hunts him a snallygaster. And I think that it's at this point that we have to keep in mind that uh, this could actually have been a cover for a hunt slash recruitment effort against the Snallygaster's hated enemy, the Dwyo. And the Dwyo is a wolf-like biped. So if you are thinking werewolves, werewolves of Maryland, you are correct. And good luck making that fit the meter. But the um, uh, wonderful world of the Dwyo implies that President Roosevelt's so-called Snallygaster hunt is a cover for recruiting werewolves for America's elite scout forces, much as Teddy Roosevelt himself commanded at San Juan Hill, and as his prescience would see our need for uh, when the wars of Europe uh, needlessly embroiled us. So my theory is the so-called Snallygaster hunt, I mean, sure, he hunts the Snallygaster because he's there, and there's a Snallygaster, and it's a jerk. But I think a lot of it is about he does it to impress and recruit the Dwyo, and so that the Dwyo join President Roosevelt's retinue and thus become uh, heroic, lycanthropic allies of the United States government. Uh, now, if you're Teddy Roosevelt and you bring down a Snallygaster as part of your werewolf recruitment efforts... You don't just leave the Snallygaster lying around. You're, no, you can send it to the Smithsonian. Yeah, there's going to. So, uh, is it in the secret wing of his presidential library or in a secret wing of the Smithsonian? Um, I think it's probably in the in the, in the Smithsonian. I think that certainly you could you could check around in the in the Roosevelt Library, but uh, the Smithsonian, according to uh, the Middletown, Maryland Valley Register, offered a reward for the hide. And again, uh, we we are familiar with the modified limited hangout. Uh, methodology. And I think that that's, that's editor George C. Roderick giving us a wink to know that the Snallygaster is in the Smithsonian and that it's, uh, that it's there. It's being studied. Possibly that's where the eggs wound up too. If you are, you know, wondering, because of course they, they, he was laying them all over the place in, uh, West Virginia, uh, just all over the mountains. And so therefore the, the eggs, there, there's multiples. So perhaps there's a real live Snallygaster somewhere out in one of the national parks that were founded by which, which president was that that founded enormous national parks where you're not allowed to go and hunt things? That's right. President Teddy Roosevelt. Dun, dun, dun. So I feel like somewhere out in Yosemite or, or maybe one of the big ones in Montana that there's probably a, a breeding population of Snallygasters maintained just in case America needs them and because it's fun. Right. So uh, uh, gaming-wise, you could, uh, in a lighthearted game of, of weird modern adventure, there could be uh, sheep that are disappearing. And then uh, 
uh, railroad workers are being picked up by their suspenders and people are being bitten by the neck and then you discover the breeding population of snallygasters in uh, Yosemite or Yellowstone or, or what have you. The most obvious thing to do with a creature like this, uh, we've already uh, seen that it has uh, multiple attacks and possibly a vulnerability is to uh, make it into an F-20 monster. Uh, the... Uh, the way that uh, it's sort of a jabberwocky uh, sort of creature, that would be fun. And uh, as you suggest, there's this other whole uh, item of the uh, secret werewolf uh, cadres uh, who presumably also are, are still around to this day. And uh, you could go and visit them. You could recruit them to your missions and possibly find out exactly what the beef is between the werewolves and, and the Stalagaster because that is, isn't immediately... Apparent to me, you'd think that they would uh, have different hunting patterns. They wouldn't, uh, uh, one wouldn't annoy the other, but it turns out that there's some sort of ancestral enmity between them. Yeah. I mean, it may just be that they both uh, ate railroad workers and there's a limited number of railroad workers to go around. Um, or it may be that there's some instinctive fear and hatred that the uh, that the Dwyo have for the Snallygasters in the way that birds hate snakes no matter what. It could be that uh, werewolves are especially delicious to Snallygasters. And that That's be true, the, because their blood is more powerful and rich and delightful. Yes, uh, possibly retains the alcohol content. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike the blood of, of, of mere Germans. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, depart this particularly uh, rugged version of, of the hut before uh, Teddy Roosevelt makes us go and charge a hill or something. I don't want to do that. And so it's uh, time for us to exit until another episode a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astrogown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Save this podcast from being mauled by a Snallygaster alongside such bully-bully backers as... Brendan Clowerty. Brian Malcolm. Drew Eichels. Daniel Markwig. And Jan Zaleski. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include Canada's serene flat-tailed mythic patron, the Magic Beaver. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.